Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. At one point in our nation's history, banks were a helpful part of our daily lives. However, in recent decades, Americans' views of the banking industry have begun to change, and it's becoming more apparent that banks put big profits first before their customers. Are you tired of overdraft fees, questionable practices that always seem to benefit your bank, or costly checking accounts? Why is it so difficult to efficiently access your own funds? Well, You are not alone. Many Americans are waking up and asking, what can we do about this? How can we take back control of our own money? Our guest, Lisa Servan, is a university professor, media contributor, and the author of The Unbanking of America, How the New Middle Class Survives. As an expert on banking alternatives and wealth preservation, she's going to help us better understand the options available to us and how to finally get a leg up on the economic ladder. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so Unbanking of America, the title, How the New Middle Class Survives. Tell me who you think the new middle class is. The new middle class is a group of people who have a lot of the hallmarks or characteristics of of what we think of as middle class people, people who have a college education, they own their homes, they make a good salary, and yet they're suffering from financial instability. Um, you know, it's at a point where about 75% of American households are living paycheck to paycheck, and 47% of Americans could not come up with $400 in the event of an emergency, and that's a huge shift. So it's a, the new middle class is this group of people who's, quote-unquote, doing everything right and still not getting ahead. Boy, don't I know it. Um, <laughs> that is just – the numbers are just staggering. Just crazy yes. to think that in an emergency people can't come up with, you know, $400, $700, $1,000. And how yep. many times do those kind of emergencies, so-called emergencies, come up? Yeah, they they happen a lot. And, you know, it's not just that people don't have that money in their bank. These statistics mean that people don't have even anyone in their larger network who could help them come up with that money, which makes it, you know, kind of underlines how how staggering and scary it is. It's very scary. Now, you accidentally wrote this book, so to speak. Like, you weren't weren't (laughs) intending on writing a a book about the unbanking of America, which doesn't right. necessarily sound sexy, but when you get into it, it's actually quite intriguing. So can you tell us how I'm that glad happened? you think so. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, you know, what happened was I kept getting, feeling like I had to answer additional questions in order to, um, in order to find out what was really going on in that kind of, soon it got to be book size, but I started out by really wanting to know why so many people were using alternative financial services, alternatives to bank like check cashers and payday lenders, if all of the literature that was out there was saying that they were bad for people and people should steer clear of them. And um, so the story started when I had a guy named Joe Coleman, who's a check casher who runs a, a chain of 13 stores in the South Bronx and Harlem in New York City, come to a class I was teaching. And um, my students and I had read all of what you expect, the material that said all the things that you would expect 
to be written about these guys, that they're predatory and sleazy and taking advantage of the poor. And Joe came in, and he made a pretty compelling case for why he thought that check his businesses were doing a good job in serving people in the community. And so that kind of triggered for me uh, a lot of questions. Um, his case was pretty compelling, and I realized that I couldn't figure it out um, by just reading data and, and looking at existing reports. And so I ended up um, a few years later calling Joe and asking if he would hire me as a teller because I felt like getting close to the situation was the only way I could really understand it. And so that kind really? of led me down the path. <laughs> so you were a teller? I worked for Joe, um, yeah, for four months in the South Bronx, and then I worked as a as a payday loan teller and collector in Oakland, California, and I staffed a hotline um, for people who were in trouble with their payday loans. So that got me really up close to people. Yeah, it was fascinating. So tell me what you learned. You know, so the first thing I really wanted to know was, again, why so many people were using these services instead of banks. And the thing that you hear most about why people shouldn't use them is that they're expensive. Um, And yet that was one of the things that people told me when I asked them why they were using a check casher was that they felt like the check casher was less expensive than banks, which totally blew me away, right? Because, you know, you think of banking as being, quote, unquote, free or getting free checking. But if you don't have a lot of money for the monthly minimum um, and you live really close to the edge so that it's hard to time when your checks get cashed and when you're paying things, you're really vulnerable to overdraft. And so, you know, someone who overdrafts once in a month is – paying $30, $35 for that overdraft, which is probably less than they would be paying, uh, more than they would be paying at the check casher. So cost was one reason, and the other two were transparency. They felt like they understood what they were paying and when better at the check casher than the bank, and service. They felt like they got better service. So those were the three big things that I heard from people in terms of why they went to the check casher and the payday lender. So overall, what are the fees like um, to cash a check and to get like a short-term loan? But right. I, I want our listeners to understand what, what that looks like so they can compare it. Right. So uh, so all of these businesses are, are regulated at the state level, um, not the federal level. That's maybe changing with the CFPB. So it differs a little from state to state. But in New York State, where I was working at the check casher, it costs 1.95% of the face value of the check to cash it, so almost you know, $1.95 for a $100 check, uh, $1.50 to send a bill. Lots of people pay their bills at check cashers. And uh, $0.89 cents for a money order, which is less than a cost at the post office. Uh, at the payday lender, I worked in California. And again, these differ from state to state. And payday loans are also illegal in 13 states, including New York. The price was $15 per $100 borrowed pretty high. And um, what also happens a lot, and this is what payday lenders get criticized for a lot, is that oftentimes when people, when when the loan comes due, which is at the date of your next paycheck, so it's either a two to four week loan, people can't pay it back. So if you owed, if you borrowed a hundred dollars, two weeks comes, it's due, you can't pay it back. You end up taking out another loan, essentially. You pay it back, but you take out another one, and you pay another $15. And so you can imagine what can quickly happen if you can't pay back that loan is that it ends up, you end up paying more than you, you know, way more than you borrowed. 
So they are relatively expensive, but the point is that sometimes people actually have no other options, and there are not enough safe, affordable financial products and services out there, especially for people who are struggling. So take that same payday um, check cashing and um, loan customer and put them in the world of the bank. Um, If the bank was helping them out, the bank isn't going to give them a short-term loan, so that's not available to them. What about credit cards? They typically don't qualify for credit cards or... Some people do. It varies a lot. So some people have credit cards and they've maxed out. Um, Other people don't have credit cards and some things, you know, they may be what's called thin file or no file. They don't have the kind of data on them that um, the credit bureaus need in order to give them a credit score. And without a credit score, you can't get a credit card, right? Um, So most of the people that I spoke with, and I also did a lot of interviews with people who were payday borrowers, uh, they had tried other kinds of they had exhausted their other resources. You know, if they could have borrowed from family and friends, they already had. If they had a balance on their credit card, they had used that. So they were really in a situation where there was no other way to get the money. And oftentimes, they, you know, they were really in these situations that, from you know, personally, I can't imagine being in, right? So, like, um, should I uh, take out this really expensive payday loan and feed my kids, or should my children go hungry? Should I take out this loan to pay my to pay to get my car fixed so I can go to work or I lose my job? And I think when you look at it from the perspective of the consumer, um, it makes rational sense. Oftentimes, I think the way that folks are talked about is in a way that they're ignorant or they don't know that there are better options out there, but they simply don't have those options. And they're actually making the smartest choice they can given their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Because... To, to many of us, that seems crazy, but you know what? Maybe we're the crazy ones because we're doing banking and we're probably paying all sorts of fees uh, that we're not really aware of that we're paying. Um, we could be, or you know, and or we simply have enough money and more, and the financial stability that we're not subject to those fees as much. We can keep a minimum balance. You know, we have enough of a buffer that if our auto pay, auto bill pay goes through before our check gets cashed or clears from our employment, it's not going to trigger an overdraft. So I think it's, I think it's probably both of those things. We're either paying and we don't realize it or um, we're kind of immune from it because we're not as, we're not part of that 75% of people who are living from paycheck to paycheck. So is the number really 75%? It is. It is. Yeah. So out of all Americans today, we've got those in poverty. We've got those um, living above the poverty line. Up to what income would you consider middle class? Oh, boy. I, you know, I'd have a hard time putting a number on it. Um, I can say that the fastest-growing group of payday loan borrowers are people who have a college education, people who own their homes, and people who are making, you know, fifty to $75,000 a year. Um, so I, I don't have a number on either the that income threshold or um, – the income threshold or the, the, the actual number of people, but that is the fastest growing group. That's that new middle class. That's the new middle class. Okay. And so what is considered those that perhaps are earning $125,000 or more and um, have money in savings? Are they considered the upper middle class? 
You know, it's funny because when you ask people, if you ask, you know, walked out on the street and did a survey of people and said, you know, what what do you consider yourself, you know, and gave them this range of options on class, something like 80-some percent say they're middle class. So everybody thinks they are. Um, but I think it also depends. You know, it's it's hard to draw a firm income line like $125,000. I guess if you were... If you were $125,000 and you had savings and retirement benefits, yeah, I'd say you're upper middle to upper class probably in our society. It does, one has to take into account the whole picture, obviously. How much debt do you have? How many people are you supporting on that income? Where do you live? Are you in a high, you know, in New York City, that doesn't go as far as it does in other places. Uh, But I did find that there were people who we, we found a sizable proportion of people who were relatively high income taking out these loans. And some of them for things, were for things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. They were supporting older children who maybe had gone to college and in this economy hadn't found a good job and had had to move back home. Um, they were maybe supporting their younger children and older parents. So a lot of kind of demographic changes playing into this that we haven't seen before in earlier generations. Fascinating. Well, I actually am a financial advisor, and my clients, what I teach them um, is the art of saving, Um, but not just saving money in a bank account, saving it in a very specifically um, designed life insurance policy that serves Mm -hmm. many, many purposes and um, allows them to have liquidity use and control of their money, but also savings. And what I learned was that most people have the perception that if they're investing in their 401k or their IRA, that they're saving money. But that's my experience and my understanding of why many of my clients, and I consider my clients middle income and the uber, uber wealthy worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Obviously, their problems are a little bit different, right? But what, what do you think, what did you find as the reason why people have gone away from savings? It was up until, I believe, the 1950s or 60s that we really lost that momentum or that whole concept of saving money. What do you think it is? I think it's a few different things. I mean, so one, one part of the picture is looking at the situation that the American worker is now and how that's changed really since the 1970s. So if you look uh, at wages, for example, wages have been declining since the 70s. Um, so people are not getting as much money as they used to for work. The second factor in this kind of macro context is increased income volatility. So income volatility has doubled over the last 30 years which means that people have much less ability to predict from week to week or month to month how much money is coming into their household. That's partly because we've shifted from salary to hourly workers because even hourly employees are, you know, not giving people any consistency in terms of how much they work, uh, those sorts of things. And the third factor is the retraction of the public and private safety net. So, again, going back a few decades, it used to be that if work didn't work, there were either public benefits or if you had the kind of shocks, income shocks or expense shocks that people experience now, like a medical emergency, your uh, employer paid better, had better benefits, better medical, for example. So, you know, one illustration, a story that I heard from a woman I interviewed in, in Dallas a couple about a year ago, she had the same public sector job for several years. And when she had her first child, she paid a copay of $50 for, you know, the hospital bills and everything that went along with it, 
her insurance changed. And by the time she had her second child a few years later, mm. her copay was $3,500. So um, that put her into a situation where she needed to go and get payday loans in order to survive and pay her bills. And it's a result of nothing that she did wrong, but that her employer changed the insurance policy. And that's happening over all, all over the place, right? We have defined uh, contribution instead of defined benefit plans for retirement. So that's part of it. And I think the other part is that there was, you know, until the CARD Act, uh, a huge increase in the amount of consumer credit available. So I do think that to some extent people also got in trouble for um, kind of ratcheting up their spending and not being able to afford it. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there was a huge shift uh, with defined um, pension plans to defined contribution plans, and mm-hmm. that was thanks to corporate America and Wall Street lobbying Congress to shift the responsibility of paying for retirement from corporate America to the individual. That's right. And so right. that safety net is, is was gone, right? And yes. um, Americans had this whole concept of savings for, I, I mean, it was just part of who we were, and it completely shifted. There was a, a programming, a reprogramming effort from, I believe, banks and Wall Street to get people to think differently, because who does it serve in, in, in the end, right? It certainly serves Wall Street. It serves the banks, because if you don't yeah. have savings, you're going to go to debt. If you don't have savings, you're going to finance your your emergencies. You're going to finance your lifestyle. You're going to finance your cars. You're going to finance your homes. I mean, it really was a huge, huge shift in reprogramming society. Yes, exactly. I agree with you. And then, you know, what we saw happen after the financial crisis was a lot of that credit got retracted. It got taken away. And so people's credit scores dropped. Um, they weren't able to get the credit they wanted. And that also created a shift toward payday loans, too. But, you know, we still have this narrative. I, I'm curious if you feel like this working with your clients. We still have this narrative that it's a, a, up to you, that you need to bootstrap yourself, that people should be able to make it. And so when I hear stories like this woman whose insurance went up or Another story I heard recently from a woman in San Francisco who was put on furlough when the state was approaching bankruptcy, you know, and needed, again, to take out payday loans. Uh, People tend to blame themselves. There's a huge amount of shame and humiliation, even though they don't have those kinds of supports that they used to. So I agree 110%. I really, really agree. And I think it comes back to mindset. Um, there's a couple of things I'll address. Number one, uh, Warren Buffett, one of my, my favorite quotes from him is, um, in times of crisis, cash and courage are priceless. <laughs> we are taught to think that we have to invest in Wall Street in order to create wealth. We are not taught to save first and invest in ourselves first and foremost. So that's number one. And number two goes the idea of I have to take full and complete responsibility for my circumstances. And from there, if there is support, awesome. But can't depend on the outside of me. I can't depend on society. I can't depend on other third parties to make sure I've got that, um, that safety net because of this exact reason. Right. Um, if right. you don't have the safety net, then you're in trouble. But it doesn't help you. It doesn't move you further. It just digs mm-hmm. a deeper hole because when you have that victim mindset, and I'm not putting anybody down, 
because um, by the grace of God, there go I, right? Um, yeah. If, if you're stuck in that mindset, in that vortex, how, how can you ever get out if you don't think differently? Right, right. And it's unfortunate that I think another part of the programming process, right, uh, was shifting the responsibility of government to take care of people instead of the free market and um, charity, right, and churches. And, you know, there used to be you could go to your community for help, and that got transferred over to the government. But the government, as we've seen, is not always going to be there. And when they shift policies, what does that do to the individual? They're stuck. Yeah. Well, we've seen a decline in that whole kind of voluntary sector as well, right? Absolutely. Yes. People are even more on their own, on their own. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's tough. It's it's very, very, very tough. And, um, you know, we could say we're all victims of this whole programming, right? Thinking that the, the, the government can take care of us. But when the government's out there, what are you going to do? You've got to shift, and you have to to change your mindset. You know, I love those movies, and I can't I can't think of the name um, right now. One of Will Smith's movie where he was um, he became a, a stockbroker, right? And he was homeless, and um, was oh, trading places, yeah. Um, no, not that one. The other one. Oh, um, I know the one you mean. Yes, yes, I know the one you mean. Where he's in he's in San Francisco, and he's kind of a genius. Yeah. Steve Harvey, I think, was the was the actor. Um, or, no, it was Will Smith, and Steve Harvey was, was another Will movie, Smith. right? Yes, and so they both have great movies that have that message of, you know what, I have to listen, figure this out, and get myself out of this hole because no one around me is helping me. Right, but not everyone is equipped to be able to do that. These are extraordinary I people, know. I think. So putting that, yeah, I you know, putting that out there as the narrative. Also, again, makes people feel like, well, if I can't, you know, I should be able to be like that guy. But um, not everybody can. You're right. You're right. So what do they do? What's the solution for them? Uh, You know, I I think that personally, I don't know, we may disagree on this, but I think we need more protection for people. um, And I think we need to think of safe and affordable financial services as a right, not a privilege. So it shouldn't be that just because I have a high minimum high balance in my checking account that, you know, I don't have to pay ATM fees. And when I lose my card, I get it FedExed to me overnight. But somebody who's got a low balance is paying $25 to get that card and they're waiting to get their cash. Um, you know, we, we need to think about a different way to provide those financial services in a way that really builds financial health for people. Um, and that doesn't mean that it needs to come through a bank account necessarily. But I think, you know, the way that we've kind of framed the issue now is in terms of how many people are banked and unbanked and underbanked. And I think that's the wrong frame. I think we need to use a financial health frame and a financial justice frame. Hmm, interesting. Are, are you familiar with the Glass-Steagall Act? I am, yeah. So do you think bringing back the Glass-Steagall Act can help reform banking to be more um, friendly to those that are stuck in this kind of um, finance hell, so to speak? Well, I think probably not Glass-Steagall, you know, verbatim. I do think that we, uh, once we went, once we, Basically, uh, once we en- enacted Gramm-Leach-Bliley in 1999, which is 70 years after Glass-Steagall, 
um, we start to loosen a lot of the regulations that enable banks to do a less good job of serving individuals. Um, they, they're also, so there's, that's the policy piece of it. They're able to merge and grow. Um, they're able to engage in both investment and commercial banking activities. And you also have in that, you know, starting a little bit earlier, but you have banks also learning how to um, generate a lot of fees. Also kind of pushed a little bit by the federal government to not rely so much on interest income. So you have kind of this mix of things happening that that pulls banks farther away from the consumer and rely more on fee income, which tends to hit lower-income people hardest. Um, I, so I do think that as banks got bigger and some of the results of, of uh, Gramm-Leach-Bliley and kind of the evisceration of Glass-Steagall did hurt consumers, I, I think it would be kind of um, short-sighted to just put it back. Um, but right now we're in a situation where Dodd-Frank, the legislation that was passed after the financial crisis, is under a lot of threat from the current administration. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is that it's, there were 70 years between Glass-Steagall and Graham Leach-Bliley, and there's only been seven years since Dodd-Frank was passed until now. Um, and so, you know, I, I think... While we can't go back in time, I do think that we need some of the kinds of protections that that Dodd-Frank provides. What about the Patriot Act? How did that change the whole banking relationship with the banks and and their clients, their customers? Well, I think so, you know, that was really kind of came, uh, resulted in this know your customer sort of legislation, which made banks uh, feel less like they could take risks on people. Um, I think that you know, it's it's had it's had some good effects, but it's also had probably some unintended consequences. I can't say for sure whether this is the case, but I know, for example, in New York, um, the city created something called a, an, an identity card for uh, people living in New York City who might not have a driver's license. Something that could be considered as a good identity card. And what happened was that after that program started, and it was enormously popular, lots and lots of people got them. Um, the four biggest, the biggest banks chose not to take them as a valid form of ID. Um, perhaps they were, you know, perhaps that had to do with Know Your Customer and the Patriot Act. Um, but it's interesting because some of the smaller and more community or, uh, community-oriented banks did take it, like Amalgamated Bank, for example. So, uh, you know, I think the policy is part of it, and bank practices are a part of it, too. What is your opinion of credit unions? I think that credit unions can do a great job of serving people. On the, on average, people who use credit unions pay a lot less in fees than people who use banks. Um, the business model is completely different. Credit unions are cooperatives, whereas banks are for-profit corporations that that are supposed to maximize shareholder value. So, you know, if you look at it that way, they are not. Um, supposed to be charity organizations. They don't make a lot of money over off of low and in, low and moderate income people. So, you know, perhaps, perhaps. I mean, one argument would say, and this is not necessarily the argument I believe, but one argument would say, well, what, there's no incentive for them to do it. Why should we expect them to serve people that they're not maximizing their profit on? Because credit unions are not about that. They're not about maximizing their profit. They're often the best choice for people. So and when I you think you know, uh-huh. I was just going to say, um, I think one of the things that people often don't realize is that 
credit unions are not on every corner like banks are. People think, how am I going to get money out of an ATM? But what's happening a lot now with credit unions and smaller, more local community banks is that they are reimbursing people for ATM fees and making it easier to do banking online and to bank in such a way that uh, that they're not paying those fees and that it's just as convenient. I, I agree. They're not, they're not your parents' uh, credit unions. I think they've come right, a long way, right. and I actually recommend them all the time to my clients because yeah. from a um, philosophical perspective, it is more like a co-op, right? That's um, right. They are cooperatives. Mm-hmm. And so the banks are for profit. The credit unions will since they're not for profit, they benefit the members by um, right. having the so-called profits um, go back to the members in terms of benefits and lower fees. And um, so, I think they do an absolutely great job. And I think you have to shop around. There are those that um, for sure. are only available for like teachers, for instance, and they're not open to everybody. But there are those that are really accepting uh, of most people. So, I think it's a great option. I do, too. I do, too. And I, I think people don't realize just how easy it would be to, you know, to either switch or to find one that works for them. Well, what I found in my banking, I, I recently switched last year from a bank I'd been with for, the long, for a long time that I didn't get the great service that, that I wanted um, to a bank that I, I am getting great service. And I also have a, a credit union. But I realized that when you switch banks, it's so interesting. You know how they always catch you or they have those offers like, you know, um, switch, switch banking to us today and we'll give you, you know, $200 or, you know, whatever. Well, the reason is because it's so darn hard to transfer all of your accounts right. and to walk away from your bank. And they know this. They know once they got you, you're willing to put up with bad customer service and a bad experience because it's not that fun to switch banks. Yeah, that's right. It's one of the things I argue for in my book is to uh, enable people to have a portable financial uh, identity that makes it easier to switch. So talk about that because I love that concept. Well, I think it's, it goes just um, the only thing to really say is that it isn't that easy. And I think there's this kind of perception almost that you're, all this information really belongs to the bank, but switching that way of thinking to, to think that it's, that it's the property of the individual and that you should be able to move it easily, right? And so there are barriers to that uh, that you just experienced, obviously. So that's kind of, that's kind of it. But, but policy, probably the CFPB, could enable that. Right, right. Well, when we talk about the, the um, strategies that we recommend to our clients, it is, um, again, giving our clients liquidity, use, and control of their money without having to deal with banks. You can't get around not having a bank if you're going to, um, I think, um, what's the word, operate, right, efficiently. Yeah. I think the banks can offer that. The strategies we work with is in addition to a bank. If you're going to work with a, a bank, I do recommend the credit unions. Um, mm-hmm. But, again, some credit unions, you know, if you've got business banking, they, they're not as – they don't offer all the range of services that your typical bank will have. So if you've got a business um, with any kind of revenue, that might be a little bit difficult. But there are some options right. out there. Uh, in closing, what, what three – action items can you recommend to our listeners, um, things that they can be aware of or they can 
um, shift right now to make their banking experience either better or protect themselves from um, the, the issues that come with having a banking relationship? Right. Well, I think the first thing to do is to kind of ask yourself, are you happy with your bank? When I ask people that, I often will speak to large groups of people and ask people to raise their hand if they're happy, and one or two people's hands go up, and they they tend to be people who use credit unions or sometimes the military banks like USAA, um, mm-hmm. but usually, usually not the big banks. Um, so ask yourself that, and then think about um, – investigate whether there are better options for you, I would say. I actually have a button on my website, which is lisaservon.com, that uh, has a button that says how to leave your bank. And there are a lot of resources there that you can click on to find out about credit unions that you might be able to join or um, ways that you could find a better bank. NerdWallet is another website that I like that helps people, you know, for example, if you need a no-cost checking account or if you're trying to decide if you're at the low end whether you should have a checking account or if you could survive with just a debit card. Those, um, I think NerdWallet does a good job of researching and presenting that information because I think that's one of the problems a lot of consumers face is that, A, there's so much information out there, it's it's often quite opaque, and B, they don't really know who to trust. You know, is this information coming from a good source or not? So, and then I would say move your money. It's empowering. Um, you will feel like you're, all, you're putting your money in a place that's there to serve you. And um, even though there's it can be a bit of a hassle to do it. It can be done. I did the same thing, too, after doing this research. I left my big bank, and I moved to a different one. And uh, so I, I, I think the other thing is probably going beyond three things, but um, the other thing that I'm seeing is that a lot of people are not just thinking about their the, the service that they get personally, but they're thinking about whether, the, whether banks' actions are in line with their own values. So, for example, I've seen a lot of millennials saying, wow, I just realized that my bank invested in the Dakota Access Pipeline, and I'm not really cool with that, so I'm going to take my money out. And these are things that you can find out about your bank. Yes, you bring up a great, great point. And if you research the financial health of the 10 largest banks out there, um, you'd be amazed at how shaky their financial position is. So I would agree. Is your bank or your banking institution, um, are their investments aligned with their values? What is their financial health? If we do have another economic um, downturn, how resilient is your bank? And you know what? The question is not if, you know, if we're going to have another one, it's a matter of when, because economics is cyclical. Um, There is an up and down um, for sure. So, well, Lisa, your information um, is so interesting. Whatever it once was, you know, the banking industry is, I don't think, and I think Lisa, you would agree, is no longer our friend through expensive no, fees I agree and with penalties. You. We've got questionable policies, business practices, confusing rules and policies. The banks are working against the middle class. Unfortunately, there are innovative alternatives that can put us back That's in right. charge of our money. That's Enable right. us well, we could talk. Free. We could talk for another hour, I'm sure, about innovation, and maybe we can do that sometime. But uh, I think people need to know that they have options. Absolutely, absolutely. So, thank you so much for joining us today. Please let our listeners know how they can find you online. 
Okay. Well, yes, my website is lisaservon.com. Uh, my email is servon at upenn.edu, and uh, I love to hear from people. I also have a, a Tumblr site called Money Stories, which is for people to post their own stories about about their issues with money, whether it's credit, debit, bank, and credit unions. And it's been a really great resource for people to see that they're not alone and to see the range of challenges that people are dealing with. Um, it's moneystories.tumblr.com. Moneystories.tumblr.com. I love it. That's, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Lisa, again so much for joining thank us you. today. And we will have a copy of this podcast on Living Wealthy Radio, so you can download it there. And we'll also have the contact information for Lisa on there. So keep up the great work. And thank you again for joining us on Living Wealthy Radio. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 